Bibles to John chapter 16. I want to take just a moment of personal privilege, if I can. I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but uh, I want to make an announcement to you about a milestone that was reached in our congregation just about a week ago. Cy and Alice Shear celebrated their 64th wedding anniversary. You all shouldn't have told me that because I wouldn't have said it. Cy and Alice are right up there, and I, and I announced that to you not to bring attention to them because they don't want the attention, but because it would be a missed opportunity for a young congregation to not acknowledge and even celebrate and congratulate a couple like the Shears who have seen 64 years of the power of gospel love in a family. It's a remarkable and beautiful thing, and Alice will be quick to tell you that those 64 years are only possible because she was 12 years old when they got married. (laughs) I don't believe that, but I'm not going to challenge her on it. So before you leave this morning, you might say a word of congratulations to the Shears. This morning in John 16, we're back in the upper room discourse. If you remember, these several chapters of John are all in the upper room. They are on the night before Jesus was uh, crucified. And Jesus is at the table with his disciples now, minus Judas, who has recently left the table. And Jesus is preparing them for the solemn occasion of his death. And he has hard and and even fascinating words for them regarding a new and strange presence that will be among them. So listen and hear what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. I'm actually going to begin at the end of chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray again, as we always do, that you would grant to us eyes to see. Would you move your spirit among us so that we can see your truth and believe 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Our boys go to a summer camp in northern Alabama where I worked for two summers while I was in seminary. It's called Alpine Camp for Boys. And over the years at Alpine, one of the now standing traditions at camp is a game that they play each term called Mission Impossible. It's, of course, named after the movie and the impossible story that it entails. And on one day at camp, at lunchtime, the the camp director will stand up for his normal announcements after lunch, and he will, uh, with some sort of skit or dramatic presentation, announce to the camp, today is Mission Impossible. And you could be deafened by the roar of the cheers of the boys in the cafeteria, 300 boys uh, risen to the heights of excitement by the prospect of an impossible mission. I don't know what it is about boys that makes impossibility so exciting, but it does. Jesus, sitting at the table with his disciples, was not nearly so campy. There was nothing of excitement in their tone as they received this impossible mission that he was going to grant to them. We read it a moment ago, the impossible mission that he gives to his disciples on the eve of his death. He says to them, the helper whom I will send will bear witness about me and you also, you also will bear witness about me because you've been with me, he says to them. It's an impossible mission, so impossible in fact that he has to go on and explain, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Because if I don't explain these things to you, you will fall away. This is an utterly impossible mission, apart from what I have to say to you. What was their impossible task? It was to bear witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It was to bear witness to the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. It was to bear witness to the coming of the kingdom of God himself upon the earth. It was to bear witness to these things. And you have to understand the impossibility of it because these men were just ordinary men. They were common, everyday folks, if you will. They were fishermen and tax collectors, carpenters and plumbers and laborers. These guys were not scholars Not one of them was an ordained rabbi, a a teacher of any repute or respect. Not one of them was that. And their impossible task was to go as they are and tell the religious professionals of their day that their scripture had been fulfilled by a poor carpenter preacher who had just been put to death in the most ignominious way that a man could be put to death in the Roman world. Imagine the reception that they would get. No way. There is absolutely no way on earth that they would be believed. It is utterly impossible. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. You have an impossible task too, you know? Your impossible task is just as simple as continuing to believe. Continuing to believe the gospel. Continuing to Believe that not only did God create all that you see around you, but that he became a man and came and lived and died and 
rose again. That's absurd. It's absurd. I mean, this is 2013. We live in Dallas, Texas. It's a cosmopolitan, pretty sophisticated city for Texas anyway. It's full of highly educated people like yourself. And you would continue to believe these things? How are you going to go and tell your neighbor these things? How are you going to bear witness to these things? I mean, the fact that you're even here this morning reveals one of two things about you. Either you feel formal and religious, and therefore you're here to check that off the list for the week so you can go on and do your normal things for the week, or it means that the Holy Spirit has persuaded your soul either of your need for God or to consider that you might need God. But apart from the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be here for any good reason. You would not. Because it's an impossible task presented to you. In fact, you would fall away except for the Helper. Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go because I will send the Helper. Who is the Helper? Well, we know it's the Holy Spirit the helper, the counselor, the comforter, whatever your translation says. All of those are good words to translate this particular word, but there's some explanation needed for the word. Paraclete. That's the Greek word that is given here. Parakaleo is the word. It's a compound word. And and now, if you don't know what that is, you need to ask your fifth grade grammar student. Parakaleo, it's a compound word. That's two words put together, parents, right? So remember your grammar. Para and kaleo. Kaleo is a verb. It means to call. And para, well, you should know what that means. Parallel, it means alongside, to come alongside. The parakaleo is the one who comes alongside and calls you. The word is all over the New Testament. It is throughout the New Testament, and it gives a good sense of its meaning in different places. In Hebrews 3, verse 13, we read, Encourage one another daily, so that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage. Parakaleo one another. Come alongside and call to each other daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, parakaleo, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. I urge you, parakaleo. And in Mark 5, it's actually found in the, in the, in the mouth of a demon. Okay, Jesus finds the man who's, who is um, occupied by a legion of demons, and they know immediately who Jesus is, and they come up to Jesus begging him earnestly, parakaleo, don't send us out of the country, they say. They parakaleo Jesus. They come alongside and they beg him earnestly. In the letters to the Corinthians, Paul uses the word 15 times throughout those letters to that troubled church. He uses parakaleo 15 times to comfort, to encourage, to urge, to plead, to implore the Corinthians to remember and live in the gospel, in the book of Acts. Luke uses it 22 times throughout this one book of Acts, the historical story of the early church. The early pictures of apologetics, of persuading people to believe the gospel, Luke 
uses parakaleo 22 times for the same reasons. Parakaleo comes alongside to call, not casually, but urgently, to persuade and convince you of the truth. Lest you should fall away from your faith, Jesus says, I will send a helper, the parakaleo, and when he comes, he will do two things. Consistent with his nature, he will convict and he will guide. He will convict and he will guide. He will convict the world of its need for God. He will convict the world of its need for God. You know it's impossible, it is totally impossible for you to convince people that they need God apart from the parakaleo. You can't do it. There are various approaches to evangelism or to persuading your neighbor of their need for God. And all of them are, are variously effective at times and in different ways. All of them fail as well. Here are three different angles on this that, that you might take home and, and put away in your hat and, and store for later. One of them is the glorification angle, the end times angle, or the ultimate questions angle. The question you would ask is this. If you were to die tonight, fill in the blank, why should God let you into heaven? That's a, a popular question. It has been a, a question kind of was popular, especially in the 1970s, 80s, the evangelism explosion movement and so forth. And Christians have asked that question thousands and thousands of times. And it's a good question. It's a helpful question. It appeals to the ultimate meaning of life and to our mortality. But the problem is it's, it's kind of easy to ignore because who really thinks they're going to die tonight? I mean, if you go to your neighbor and say, if you die tonight they're going to look at you and say, I'm not. So why do I need to worry about your question, right? And if I am, maybe I don't believe in God or heaven or everybody goes to heaven anyway, so why do I need to say anything, right? So it falls apart at some point. That's the glorification angle. The justification angle, the justification angle or the guilty conscience angle is, what will you do with your guilt? That's a good question too. It's a helpful one. It appeals to the conscience, and everybody has a conscience, right? But our conscience has fallen too, and the problem with this question is that in our post-moral society, guilt is really passe. I mean, the, the notion of guilt is really just kind of passe, except as far as it's defined by law, and the police call you guilty and you go to jail. Otherwise, guilt, and what, what, kind of, what is guilt? So that question falls at points two. The third one is the sanctification approach. I think this one is maybe the best one of the three nowadays. This is the not-like-it's-supposed-to-be approach. Say your neighbor you talk to over the fence every now and then is struggling with his teenage son. They, they argue. They fight with each other. There's always tension and conflict between them, and he asks you, what do I do about this? I don't know what to do. I, this, is, this is driving me crazy. My son drives me mad. And your question for him might be, well, what would improvement look like in your life situation? What would progress look like in your relationship with your son? That's a good question. It, it, it appeals to the everyday, the here and the now sense of how things should be because your neighbor knows it shouldn't be like it is. But your neighbor may be hard-hearted and he may say, well, progress would be when he graduates from high school and gets out of my house. And that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? So all of them are helpful. All of them fail at different points. The point is the Holy Spirit must be at work convicting 
The word is elenko in Greek, convicting. That is a, a, a legal term to cross-examine, to, explo- to expose, to show the holes in one's story, to show them where their position is wrong, to expose them for what they are. Jesus uses it in John 3 when he says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to it lest his deeds should be exposed. Elenko, the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, will do this. Apart from His work, any effort to convince someone of their need for God will fail. In my years as a campus minister with RUF, I had various experiences with this with students. And I remember one of my very first pastoral visits as a campus minister on campus was to a fraternity house. I figured that since I had been a member of that particular fraternity when I was in college... I would have that commonality with these guys, and I could go and and talk to them. Maybe they would listen to me. And so I invited myself to their chapter meeting, and they were obligated to let me come because I was a brother anyway. So I went, and I sat in their chapter meeting, and they even let me speak and introduce myself and tell them why I was there on campus. Hey, guys, I'm one of you. I I was in your fraternity in college. I even know your secret handshake. I figured it would get me somewhere with these guys. Maybe they would listen and pay attention to what I had to say. Nothing. For seven years, nothing but a secret handshake. In contrast to that, one evening at RUF, after our meeting was over, a young woman came up to me and introduced herself. She said, my name is Alicia, and I'm not a Christian, and I would like to be. My friend told me, that I should go and find the RUF campus minister that maybe he could help. Can you help me to become a Christian? And I looked at her, and then I looked around the room wondering what students are pulling a prank on me because this is too easy. And there were none. I mean, she was for real. And she and I sat down over the next several weeks, a couple of times a week, to, to, to read through Scripture and talk through the parts of the Gospel. And she became a believer. I mean, it was just as easy as that. Because the Holy Spirit was at work. I didn't know her. We didn't have a secret handshake together. But the Spirit was there. The Spirit, the parakaleo, will convict the world of its need for God in three steps. Verse 8 is where it is. Jesus is so systematic. He'll convict concerning sin. Sin can be so subtle, you know. Sin, our sin, it hides in the deep, dark recesses of our souls. You saw the, the headlines recently from Cleveland, Ohio, the, the three women and, and the little girl that were confined in that house for 10 years and the guy that held them captive. And the neighbor, Charles Ramsey, did you see his interview on TV or online? The, the neighbor who freed them from the, the house, he was the one nearby that heard the banging on the door and came and helped them out. This man was interviewed on television. He was hilarious in his honesty He said about the captor neighbor, he said, that dude just did normal stuff. He tinkered with his motorcycle in the driveway. I went over there and barbecued with him. We even listened to salsa music together, if that's normal. But I had no idea that he was holding three women captive inside that house. Our sin is so subtle. It hides so well. But it's more subtle even than that. Jesus explains it. He will convict concerning sin. Why? Because they don't believe in me. It's not dramatic. 
but it's very profound. You know, when we want to convince our neighbor of their need for God, we tend to want to go for the things about them that make us uncomfortable. They drink too much. They have body art. They vote for the wrong political candidates. They're materialistic. They wear suggestive clothing. Those are the things that we want to correct. But what does Jesus say about that stuff? Verse 2, he says, The hour is coming when whoever kills you, now this is a bad neighbor, when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God and he'll do it because they haven't known God. That's why. He convicts concerning sin because they haven't known God. You know, every expression of our sin is a moment of disbelief. Do you know that? Every every expression of your sin is a moment of disbelief. You don't sin because you do evil things. You do evil things because in that moment, you don't know God. It's the expulsive power of a greater affection as your affection grows for God who made you, as you revel in His redeeming love for you, that He came to you in your sin to pursue you, then you will want your expressions of sin less and less. He comes to convict concerning sin because they don't know God. He also will convict concerning righteousness Because, he says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? It's almost like the explanation doesn't follow from the statement clause. He'll convict concerning righteousness because I'm about to go away. What does that mean? It means very simply this. Jesus is righteousness. You don't know what righteousness is apart from Jesus. And there is none apart from Him. You know, being convicted of sin doesn't just mean feeling bad. It means turning your eyes to see Jesus. No longer would the disciples have the very personification of righteousness living in their midst. And so the Holy Spirit would come to convict regarding righteousness. Why? Why would He have to do that? It's because people don't want grace. You don't want it, and I don't want it. We don't want grace. What is grace? Grace is God is going to do good for His people, even when they don't deserve it, even when they don't want it, even when they reject it, even when they don't know it. He's still going to do good for His people, and we don't want grace. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict us. Only the parakaleo can expose your need for grace. See Everett Koop, Dr. Coop was the Surgeon General of the United States years ago. And he was a believer. He came to Christ later in life through uh, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer and also 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he explained his coming to faith over the course of a long time, some, some years, uh, out of his parents' sort of religious upbringing of, of him and and his struggling with what does it mean to be a good Christian and so forth, and and listening to the preaching of the Word, he said he finally came to this realization. He said, all along I thought it was about me developing a righteousness to give to God on the last day. That's not it. He said, 
No, it's about God developing a righteousness to give to me on the day that I believe. It is necessary for the Holy Spirit to convict concerning righteousness so that you and I might receive grace. He also convicts concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That is, because Satan is judged. The enemy is judged. Here is the greatest dramatic irony of the whole gospel. Okay? The death of God means the end of Satan. And God can come back from the dead. The death of God means the end, the death of Satan, and God can come back from the dead. God can come back to life. And He did. The ruler of this world is now in the throes of death. And here on the eve of His death, Jesus knew what His death meant. It meant that Satan would now die. Because Jesus would have fulfilled all righteousness, would have fulfilled the whole law for His people so that they would have life and freedom in Him. It meant that the enemy was now going to die. Satan has been judged. Even now, he's in the throes of death and his kicks of death are violent. You see them every day. Every day. You just look at the headlines in the newspaper and you see the the, the, the death kicks, the throes of death of the evil one. But in Christ, Satan has seen his final judgment. And you have to know that. In order to receive grace and realize that it's true and recognize that your life going forward, that you must be convicted of the fact that your enemy is dead. And you can go forward in faith. He must convict regarding sin because it blinds you to knowing God. And he must convict regarding righteousness because you don't want grace. And he must convict regarding judgment because you have to know that the enemy is done. But the work of the Holy Spirit is not just conviction. It's also guidance. He's a guide. That's what Jesus says here in verses 12 to 15. You know, it would be impossible. It would be totally impossible for you to know and believe the gospel without God having revealed himself to you. Oh, you would know that God is there. That's what we call general revelation. But special revelation, God revealing himself, is what lets you know and believe The gospel. Verses 12 to 15 are key, totally key for understanding the formation of the New Testament canon of Scripture. Okay, they're really important verses. You should pay attention to them and see what they have to say. The Old Testament is a little simpler. You know, we we know that the Old Testament is the Word of God in a number of different ways, but the simple way is that Jesus himself accepted it. Jesus knew the whole Old Testament. It was all in place. All 36 books were there already. He knew them. He quoted from them. He accepted them. Therefore, they're the Word of God. The New Testament's a little more complicated than that because Jesus was dead when it was written, right? So how do we know that the New Testament is the Word of God? Last week, Chad said something very helpful. He said, in regard to the job of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to put the church in position to see Jesus. Remember the picture of Chad, four years old, up on the tall man's shoulders so that he could see his father. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He puts the church in position to see Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in 
verses 12 to 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Now here you have to see clearly the context in which these words are spoken. Imagine if we each took this statement for ourselves. He will guide you into the truth. You, Christian, He will guide, the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth. We could abuse that so easily, and Christians do so often. You know, if one of you, if I was doing that, and one of you came to me and said, Colin, you really need to quit stealing tomatoes out of your neighbor's garden. I could just say, well, the Holy Spirit just hadn't convicted me of that truth yet. Right? I mean, we, we could do that so easily, and Christians do that. I've heard people do that when I told them, you should do this to serve your church. And someone has said, well, the Holy Spirit just hadn't told me that yet. And I want to say, he's doing it right now. It's not a personal application in the sense we have to recognize clearly the context. Jesus is saying this to the apostles. Here are his men, his eleven, gathered around the table with him. There's no other audience there to hear it. He's saying to them, the Holy Spirit will guide you, apostles, into the truth. He explained it moments before, even in chapter 14, verse 26, he said, the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Do you ever wonder, how is it that years later the New Testament writers remembered the words that Jesus said? You don't know what I said a year ago. I don't know what you said a year ago. But they knew what Jesus said years before. How do they know that? Jesus told them. The Holy Spirit will come and He will bring to your remembrance all the words that I've said. It's supernatural. It just is. And if you're a skeptic this morning thinking, I don't believe that, I don't get that, I don't don't get it, I don't know what else to say. But to submit to Scripture and recognize that God does as He pleases to bring His Word to His people, this is how it happened. How do we know that the New Testament is the Word of God? We know it. Because the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles to make it so. Peter wrote it this way in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, he, 2 Peter 1. He said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter explained it. There it is. The Holy Spirit carried them along. He brought to remembrance all that Jesus had said, and they could write it down And so they have. And here it is. You want to know what God has to say to you? It's on pages and in print. It's just that simple. Yes, the Holy Spirit communicates with us. He he is active and alive here in this building now today. He works in our souls and He convicts and guides us. He convicts us regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. But this is a different thing. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will guide the apostles into all of the truth. And the point is this. Apostolic revelation is complete and it's sufficient. It's finished and it's all that we need to know the gospel and to believe. It's here in the Bible. 
you can't know what the Holy Spirit has to say to you apart what he's put in that book. And we acknowledge that truth in our worship service every Sunday here in the Lectio Continua. You know, that continuous reading, those Latin words none of us ever speak. The continuous reading that we have every Sunday here in this church. Most of the time it's out of place. It doesn't match up. Ecclesiastes doesn't match up with John 16 exactly. And maybe it doesn't seem to make sense to you. Why don't we just hear that? The point is to persuade you that these are the words of life for you. And every part of Scripture is God's word to you. That's why we do that. We acknowledge it as well when we come to the communion table right here, even this morning. We come to this table not only united to each other, but united to the early church out of which this book came by the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing and remembering the words of Christ to them. The point of this guidance is a gift of grace. In verse 14, Jesus says it. He says, and he will glorify me. In guiding you apostles into all of the truth and bringing to your remembrance all of my words so that you can write it down in this book that my people will have for millennia to come, you will glorify me. You will bring attention to my significance. And remember, there is nothing greater for you to know or to see than the infinite significance of who Jesus is. To see that the Word of God came in the flesh to do what you could not do, to gain what you could not live without. It is an impossible mission, an utterly absurd and impossible mission to bear witness to Jesus. Because you've known Him, no one would believe. You wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. Lest you should fall away. The Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, has come alongside to urge plead with you to convict, to persuade you. Listen to Him and do as He calls. Father, we pray that You would grant to us faith to believe. Once again, would You show us Your Word by the work of Your Spirit and persuade our hearts as You Yourself come alongside us to teach us Your good news and to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment that we might have life in Jesus' name, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen.